When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey there, folks. Stephen Andrasano here, your dutiful dialogue editor and pretentious producer. Listen, this episode contains spoilers for the entirety of the book Dracula. So if you are someone who is reading for the first time and you do not want any of the plot spoiled, you may want to come back to this interview after you've finished the book. Without any further ado, here's our conversation with the one and only Dr. Mary going. Please enjoy. Hello, dear listener. Something a little bit different for you today. Hi, I'm Stephen Indrasano, your usual dialogue editor and one of the producers on Bloody Disgusting's Redracula. This is one of the bonus episodes that we were able to do because of your generous support. Thank you to everyone who backed this project so we could have wonderful conversations like the one we are going to have today. We are joined by Dr. Mary Going, Research Associate at the University of Sheffield. This is going to be a conversation about anti-Semitism in Dracula and in the Gothic at large. Mary, welcome. Hi, thank you. It's lovely to be here. So I'm going to start with a really simple, easy question. Could you define the Gothic? Oh, that's a great one. Um, <laughs> so uh, I guess TLDR is anything spooky that's fascinated with, with death and the macabre, interested in the supernatural or perhaps the explained supernatural. It kind of overlaps a lot with horror, although they are very different. If you are talking about Gothic literature, it starts with a novel called The Castle of Otranto, which was published in 1764, which is your typical haunted house, spooky castle narrative, which has ghosts, a giant helmet, a big evil baron, a damsel in distress who is chased around the castle, dressed in white, and a hero to save the damsel. Like I said, it often overlaps a lot with horror, so as well as those kinds of you know visceral moments of physical gore, you also have things like the devil. He comes into it a lot. The explained supernatural is also really important in the gothic, where maybe it's ghosts, but in the end it turns out to be a kind of Scooby-Doo-esque kind of thing where it's not a ghost, it's just a human being. So you have that kind of tension in a lot of gothic narratives. But yeah, that is, uh, I guess, a very short explanation <laughs> of what the gothic yeah, is. Yeah, for those of you who are not gothic studies people, that was a very mean thing that I did because asking <laughs> to explain what the gothic is is a bit like asking to explain what what is art, you know, what <laughs> what is humanity? <laughs> it's this massive umbrella term that encompasses everything from aesthetics to architecture to what we're talking about today, which is literature. I can give you a longer definition if you would like. I just don't know how long you actually want. I, I want you to go off, please. Let's get into it. <laughs> okay. So if you think about the term Gothic, where does it come from? So we have to go all the way back to the Roman Empire and specifically the fall of the Roman Empire. So when Rome was at its peak, it was kind of like the pinnacle of civilization and democracy and good art 
And then who came in and, and sacked Rome? It was the Visigoths. And they sacked Rome, destroyed their empire, went around pillaging and, and plundering. And so Goths became barbarous and uncivilized and, and all of those kinds of things. In the medieval period, like you say, like art and aesthetics, you have a fascination with dance macabre, um, with memento mori. Everything was about skulls and death. And you have all of these big kind of cathedrals and abbeys. And as soon as you get into the Renaissance, everyone's kind of like, well, that's kind of bad, isn't it? And it's all kind of gothic and old and spooky. And also we're Protestant now, so anything Catholic is bad. So it kind of all gets swept up into this big snowball, if you like. And then you get to the 18th century and the castle of Otranto and, and things where these kind of old narratives and especially narratives about the supernatural and about chivalry and knights and big castles became popular and were used as a way to entertain people, but also to talk about what was happening at the time. So anything kind of bad and, and popular and barbarous and spooky and, you know, a little bit edgy, it's kind of just been, again, subsumed by that massive snowball of the Gothic. So it's interesting. I'm glad that we stepped back to look at the full history because what we're talking about today is the intersection of the Gothic, that massive snowball, and anti-Semitism, which is a political force, a prejudice, etc. We'll define here more explicitly in a moment that's been around for just an obscene amount of time. And because of that, these two modes of thought intertwine in some really interesting ways that we see very actively in Dracula. So that's what we'll be building to today. We're going to define our terms first, like good English students, and then we'll connect some dots. So let's switch gears here for a second and let's define anti-Semitism because like all isms, there are a variety of definitions that people work off of. And I think it's going to be really important to be clear about what we mean as we talk about this. Yeah. And I'm really glad that we're starting here because I, I think it's really important to define your terms. So I'm going to quote from the Jerusalem Declaration on Antisemitism, just because I think it's a really helpful starting point. So this definition states that antisemitism is discrimination, prejudice, hostility or violence against Jews as Jews, or Jewish institutions as Jewish institutions. So this definition was developed by a group of scholars in the fields of Holocaust studies, Jewish studies, and Middle East studies. And I also think that it's really important to kind of highlight that this form of prejudice overlaps both racism and religious prejudice. So any kind of specific individual or group of people who are thought to be ethnically Jewish, religiously Jewish, or even secular Jews can experience this kind of prejudice and hostility. I think that's really important in the context specifically of Dracula, because this book was written at such an interesting time for the development of what we think of as the modern conception of race. Mm -hmm. You see a lot of physical descriptions of characters as a kind of basis for how we're supposed to feel about them morally or ethically. And I was wondering if you could talk to me a little bit about how that ties into not just racism, but also anti-Semitism. That's a really great question. Um, I think two kind of really, really important 
historical examples of how does our understanding of, of racism, where, like, where does it come from? Where does racist discrimination come from? Obviously, you have the slave trade, which is perpetrated by a lot of people in Europe against Black people in Africa. It is undoubtedly political racism and economic and, and nation state racism. The other thing that you have is the persecution of Jews in the medieval period and the Middle Ages, where you have wholesale discrimination of a group of people sanctioned by the state, whether that's through expulsion. So Jews were expelled from a number of European countries, including England in 1290. And you also have state sanctioned kind of pogroms and violent acts against Jewish people, uh, lots of myths and fictions that percolate and spread across nations. And this kind of, you know, idea that this group of people are different and it is because of some kind of physical difference or biological difference and therefore the state will sanction discrimination against this group. And by the time you get to the 19th century, these kinds of early ideas of, of race have, have really kind of solidified through pseudo-race science and physiognomy especially, which is the idea that by looking at someone's face or their skull, measuring, you know, how certain physical characteristics are, you can tell what kind of person they are, whether that be uh, in terms of race or in terms of, is this person a criminal? So by the end of the of the 19th century, you have all of these, they're not really science, they're pseudoscience, but these ideas of discrimination and state-sanctioned discrimination merging with scientific language and discussions of physiognomy and evolution, devolution, degeneration, and they're all kind of swirling around. So how does that relate to some of the descriptions of the Count? Because there's really two things going on that I want to make sure that we touch on. One is physical descriptions of Count Dracula as a kind of stereotypically Jewish-looking person. And the other one has more to do with metaphor. This is something you talked a little bit about in a talk of yours I watched on a YouTube channel, which everyone needs to go out and check out, called Romancing the Gothic. You presented on this exact kind of intersection here, and you just spelled it out so beautifully. So I would love if you could talk a little bit about the tropes that exist in these racist and anti-Semitic myths that were used to justify these political actions? So basically, in the medieval period, you have the kind of solidification and emergence of several myths. Probably the the most overarching one is blood libel. So these are stories and myths that suggest that Jewish people are essentially going around stealing Christian children and using the bodies and the blood of Christian children in their satanic rituals. This is obviously coming after a thousand or so years of Christianity and Judaism developing in in kind of tandem with each other. So at this point, you have very distinct religious groups and from both perspectives, very, very stark theological differences. And one of the key tenets of Christianity is the idea of the sanctity of Christian blood and the importance of the Christian saviour. 
as part of these blood libels, you have the idea that Jewish people are not only denying the Christian savior, but they're almost performing the opposite of Christian rituals. If you can think about like the Eucharist and the use of wafers and wine, where the wine represents the blood of Jesus Christ and the wafer represents the body of Jesus Christ. And whether symbolically or whether through transubstantiation, you believe that there is an actual transformation happening, there is a consumption of the blood and body of Jesus Christ. The inverse of that suggests that Jewish people are in league with Satan and they are using the blood and the bodies of of Christian children to perform satanic rituals. And there's also part of this libel is the kind of host desecration libel, which suggests that Jewish people are stealing the host or, or the wafer used in that Christian ceremony. And they're doing the same kinds of things in those rituals. It's essentially a form of torture where they're actually torturing the body of Jesus Christ. Obviously, this this wasn't happening. These are all made up. But you have then as a result of that, it's a kind of scapegoating where you can justify violence and persecution of Jewish communities because, oh, didn't you hear they're kidnapping children and they're performing all of these horrible rituals on them? You also have other stories, uh, including um, well poisoning stories. So the idea that Jewish people are going around and poisoning wells, which obviously would bring a lot of disease to communities. And I think when you get to Dracula, what you see is the kind of regurgitation of some of these myths where you have the stealing of children. So Dracula steals a child to to feed to the three brides of Dracula. And where he goes, he brings with him death and disease. And he also has a kind of foul stench with him that you know that he's different because he smells different. And it's it's another part of that evolution of those kinds of blood libel stories. What you just said unlocked something for me as well, which is that this is a book that is absolutely rife with the interruption of Christian and protective rituals. You know, I, I think of the taking of the garlic flowers, mm-hmm. where this is a ritual that is meant to be protective of a good Christian woman that is disregarded and it brings death and, and peril and chaos to all involved. There is something I think going on too in Dracula that I wonder if you would talk to about a kind of fear of a powerful other, in this case very heavily tied to these uh, myths of, of Jewish blood libel, etc., coming and taking over, in this case, London. I believe you've spoken on this before, but I think our audience might benefit from getting a a historical perspective on why that fear at that time. Okay, yeah. So this essentially stems down to, I guess, a combination of rising immigration and economic ills. So we'll come back to that term scapegoat that I used to talk about blood libels. And it's essentially what's happening in the end of the 19th century. So throughout history, in Britain especially, in in a a lot of European countries, the Jewish population has always been quite a small minority. But at the end of the 19th century, there's quite a significant rise 
of Jewish immigration. And in the 19th century as well, you also have a combination of a rise in, of immigration from Eastern Europe in, in general. So if you think about today and the, the language and the rhetoric that surrounds immigration today, just think about that, but transplant it into, uh, you know, 100 or 200 years ago. And also at the same time, this is happening. The economy is not doing very well. Maybe you're not getting paid a lot. Maybe you can't afford things. Prices are going up. Wages are going down. There's stagnation. And this is kind of like opportunism where it's immigrants and specifically Jewish immigrants are, are a, a useful scapegoat for people to blame those economic ills on. So are you worried about not being able to get a job or to have more money? It's because these immigrants are coming over and they're stealing your jobs and you need to blame them. Don't blame us. And the other thing with anti-Semitism in particular that's kind of different to other forms of racism and persecution is, I guess, the stereotype of the global elite, where you have this conspiracy of a rich cabal of Jewish people who are incredibly rich. And you might not know it, but everyone is funded by this group of Jewish people. At the moment, it seems to be always that George Soros is blamed. But it's this kind of idea that there is something um, or, or someone that you can blame for what's going wrong with the economy and also with, with the country. So it is a mixture of, of xenophobia and a fear of the other and that kind of economic anxiety that is misused. So where do we go from here, right? My question always is, I'm very pro-analysis. You know, I, I don't think it does anyone any good to kind of learn something uncomfortable about a book they love and then put their head in the sand and say, well, that can't be true because I like the book. Obviously, no one gets a doctorate in anything without being passionate about it. So I'm curious, you know, as you've done all of this research into the history of the Gothic and how it intertwines with this incredibly harmful force in the world, how have you found spaces to reconcile those two things? I am very much a proponent of being able to be critical of things that you love. And I think that that's healthy. I think that we should always be aware that, you know, the things that we love might be problematic in some ways. So I am a massive fan of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And I continue to be a massive fan of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I know that Joss Whedon is very problematic. And I do think about that and consider that when I watch the show. And when it comes to anti-Semitism, and especially the Gothic, I think we can do something similar. It's not that we necessarily have to discard all of the books and texts that we love, but we have to acknowledge that there are problematic elements contained with them. And I also like to think about it in terms of intent versus impact. And where do we go from there? So I like to use the analogy of, of somebody who is, you know, maybe in a park, you've got a ball, you're throwing it into a net or something. That's your intention. But what if you hit someone with that ball and you don't intend to hit them, but you have hit them? Regardless of your intention, you have to deal with that impact. And I think that's where we go from there. We have to look at the impact, and especially for people who are Christian or culturally Christian, 
think about the impact of the culture and society that, that you are a part of and stand up if you notice something. If you're reading a book, think about how you can critique that and maybe seek out books that don't contain those kinds of stereotypes. So maybe read Dracula, but then go and find something written by a Jewish person and see what their take on it is. On that note, I know that your research has progressed somewhat from, okay, what's the historical to, well, what is being produced right now? And I was wondering if you could speak on that as an avenue for this is the history, this is what's happening now. So the 21st century has kind of seen a, a massive boom in, or I say massive, it's relative, I guess, to the fact that not that many horror films were being made by Jewish people in the 20th century. We can go into the reasons why. Obviously, I think one of the big ones is the Holocaust and the fact that six million Jews were murdered. So just who could make those kinds of films? You know, now there might be space for a lot of people who are creating horror films to maybe address those issues from that kind of perspective. But yeah, one really good example of this is Blood Relatives, which came out last year. It's written and directed by Noah Sagan. If anyone likes Knives Out, he's Rian Johnson's favourite Easter egg to put in all of his films. But Noah Sagan stars as a vampire who was in the Holocaust and has been driving around America ever since he managed to escape from the Holocaust. And now he has a daughter. And how did that happen? Don't know in terms of it being a vampire story, but it's a really good way of somebody taking what I think is quite a, you know, filled space of, of vampire text. There's so many vampire films and books and stories out there and doing something really different with it and using the kind of notion of immortality and also potential monstrosity but also a sympathetic monster to look at ideas of trauma of holocaust trauma intergenerational trauma and and just jewish identity in the 21st century it's a really funny film as well but it's also just a really good film in terms of a Jewish film made by Jewish people, starring Jewish people, and it's spooky and has vampires. So That's what we're about. I want to stay on this for just a little bit longer because I think one of the kind of crises of identity that, that you can have occasionally as a horror person is you have to reckon with how effective horror can be at portraying fears that are subconscious and are, you know, below our capacity if we're not careful to think critically about what we're learning to fear. And the vampire mythos, this this creature that has been built over centuries, has seen some real changes even within our lifetime. And I think those changes can really speak to different ways of thinking about in this case, anti-Semitism, but also in, in the way of thinking about power and the way of thinking about wealth. Tell me if you think that this is on base or not, because I don't have a doctorate. Um, <laughs> I, I'm wondering if you feel it's true that there's something about the Gothic that has a particular interest in wealth and power, because it's certainly a theme throughout Dracula does that ring true to you? And, and I if... think, yeah, that's a great question. And I think that most Gothic narratives are to some extent 
interested in class, that kind of power dynamic and how it intersects, whether that's with gender or or with race or, or religion. So to go back to that first example that I mentioned, The Castle of Otranto, the first Gothic novel published in 1764, it's about inheritance and stolen inheritance. And the hero of the novel is someone who has been dispossessed of his rightful castle and his rightful inheritance. So we can think about that in terms of power, who the monsters of Gothic novels are. They're often rich people or people who are trying to control wealth. Another really great example is Anne Radcliffe's The Mysteries of Udolpho, which is a really great but very, very long Gothic novel published, I think, 1794. And the heroine of the novel is someone called Emily. She's an orphan and her aunt marries a man who doesn't have any money. And he's trying to get the aunt and then Emily to sign over their money and their wealth to him. So all those kinds of ideas of of power, who has it, who wants it, and how that intersects with class and gender and and race are, are incredibly, incredibly important. When it comes to Dracula, he's old money. You know, Jonathan goes to the castle and when he's investigating, he finds all of this gold and Dracula has a lot of wealth. And what he wants to do is to use that wealth, to use that gold through his vampirism to control Britain. He doesn't really get that far. I guess that's not really a spoiler. Um, He doesn't win. (laughs) (laughs) The question of spoilers in in the Dracula fandom is fascinating to me because the book is so old, you guys. (laughs) People are coming to it for the first time. Mm. I wanted to circle back. Let's talk a little bit about Jonathan Harker and about his role in this book. There's been some speculation online about the gender roles in Jonathan's position as a kind of pseudo damsel in distress. Does that ring true to you? Oh, 100%. Jonathan, poor poor Jonathan. He is the poor gothic heroine. He goes to the castle and he fulfills that role of someone who gets chased around the castle, is locked up in a castle, can't leave needs to be rescued, all of these kinds of things. One of my favorite passages in Dracula is where Dracula stops the three brides from, you know, killing Jonathan because he says, he's mine, he's mine. And I think that also adds another really interesting homoerotic kind of queer angle to Dracula's relationship with Jonathan. And also where does Dracula fit in that idea of of, of gender as well? But for Jonathan, absolutely, he is not, your kind of man's manly man. He's very much someone who is a damsel in distress. And he fulfills more than anyone else in the novel that kind of conventional role of the Gothic heroine in those earlier scenes. This, to bring it back to anti-Semitism, it does make me wonder, is there a gendered aspect to the kinds of stereotypes and tropes that we see in anti-Semitic works across history? So again, the answer is yes. So a lot of these kinds of original constructions are born out of Christian narratives, sometimes theology, but more so popular narratives and ideas. And especially when you get to the medieval period, you have this idea developing that the divine body, so it's often focused on bodies, the divine body is is the male body. 
race wasn't exactly um, how we would view it today, but you can put in kind of unspoken or, or in brackets, the white male body, but definitely that kind of idea that the divine and sanctioned human body is a white Christian male and anything else is to some extent polluted. And so if you're viewing like the Christian body and the Jewish body as a dichotomy, there are lots of stories, therefore, that if the Christian body, the male Christian body is divine, then the Jewish body is therefore polluted and female and demonic. And you have loads of really ridiculous. I do want to emphasize that these are ridiculous myths about Jewish male menzies in this period. So the idea that Jewish men, because they are to some extent polluted women, experience menstruation and every month bleed. And you have those kinds of ideas of gender and a lack in terms of being that kind of fully realized male body in, in Dracula, where, for example, in the scene where he um, comes upon Mina, while well, all the other men are out hunting his tombs, and he's essentially breastfeeding her. She's drinking blood from him, but from his chest, essentially. So you have those ideas that even in Dracula, he is to some extent not entirely considered to be that idealized, divine male body. It's kind of mind boggling to consider the depth of the history there when you think about what is acceptable for a male figure to be. And Dracula is in some ways powerful, but is powerful in a way that is, you know, wrong, aligned with evil, and is therefore in some way feminine. And that can come out in the way that he treats Jonathan as a potential kind of sexual target. There's a real reading for that. Tonight is mine. You know, he is mine. I'm curious, you know, You've spent so much time with this mode and with this text. How have you seen that kind of ripple out in terms of differing interpretations of the book or even just differing interpretations of what it is to be vampiric? Yeah, so I think if you're talking about anti-Semitism and Dracula, you have to mention Nosferatu, which is the uh, 1922 German expressionist film it's black and white it's silent it's the unofficial adaptation stoker's widow sued the makers of nosferatu because it was unofficial and it only survives today because there were a few kind of copies that weren't destroyed but in that film you have the dracula figure who is count orlock who invades this kind of fictional town and brings with him plagues of rats disease and especially if you look at his kind of physical characteristics it's like the description of Dracula in the novel that kind of stereotypically ethnically Jewish stereotype but really really exaggerated and I think that's been incredibly influential in vampire kinds of media um, you often find there will be a, a Nosferatu figure what we do in the shadows is a really good example of having different vampire types. So yeah, What We Do in the Shadows, if anyone hasn't seen it, it's a satire mockumentary by Taika Waititi. 100% would recommend that you watch it. It's very, very funny. And it has this bunch of vampires all living together as roommates in one house. And one of those vampires is your kind of 
typical Nosferatu type vampire. What do we do with that? Because we can't ignore Nosferatu. And there was a really famous remake as well in the 70s, I think. But again, I think it comes back to the idea of intent versus impact. And what are you doing with those characters and, and representations? For me personally, the most interesting vampire kind of media that I see are, are ones that do something a little bit different. I think we've all seen loads of Dracula films. We've also seen loads of vampire you know, narratives, whether that be in stories or in films or in TV shows. So what are you actually bringing to the table that's different? That's why I really like Blood Relatives, because it's a really fresh take on it that does address some of those core issues. I think it's been one of the things that's been really interesting about the Dracula Daily phenomenon, which then, of course, directly inspired our work here, is that through the centuries of these set of tropes calcifying around one particular idea of what a vampire is and what Dracula is, the source text has been kind of left behind in some interesting ways. You know, people are actively shocked when I'm like, yeah, there's a cowboy. <laughs> there is, in fact, a, a rootin' tootin' cowboy in the novel Dracula. And people go back and they say, what are you talking about? Yeah, and I have to say, I love Quincy Morris. I think he's one of my favorite characters in the book. So I did a, a kind of YouTube show with the Rosenbach Museum, which is based in Philadelphia. This was during the pandemic. So every week, Ed Petit from the Rosenbach was joined by a co-host who would go over and read through like one chapter of the book. So chapter by chapter every week. And myself and my colleague, Dr. Lauren Nixon, were on together as one of these kind of revolving co-hosts. And every time Quincy Morris came up, we would gush over how amazing we thought he was and he's great and he's this American cowboy and everyone else, obviously it being a, an American show, would be like, really? Really? Isn't he just kind of uh, <laughs> a weird American stereotype? I would like to go on the record. Which I guess he is, but... This, this might be a spicy take, but as an American, <laughs> as a damn Yankee, I am 100% pro Quincy Morris. <laughs> Those Philadelphians did not know what they were talking about. Uh, he is an excellent character and... Uh, we hope to do him justice. I wanted to, as a last kind of point here, I, I was able to listen to uh, an episode or two of your podcast, which I highly recommend, by the way. It's called The Ghoul Guides, uh, and it's a kind of conversational show about the Gothic and the history of and individual aspects of. Um, and one of the concepts that you brought up on that show that I really wanted to get into our kind of feed here is this idea that Gothic literature or media can either reinforce existing power structures and stereotypes, or it can actually be revolutionary in some way and talk about the aspects of our society and culture that are deeply unfair. And so I, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit on that theme and discuss some places where you've seen it done really well or really poorly. I think a lot of Gothic and horror narratives can be kind of conventionally small C conservative because they're all about, especially when it comes to monsters, you know, destroying the monster. If we view monstrosity as anything that's, you know, abnormal, which therefore encompasses anything, you know, queer identities, female identities, other racial identities, then is killing the monster the best thing to do? With that said, I think sometimes even when you have narratives that are explicitly conservative, where they want to have that 
ending where the heroine ends up with the hero, the monster is vanquished and everything is, is okay. There's still elements in those texts that disrupt the status quo and suggest that maybe maybe there is something different or maybe there is something in monstrosity to be kind of salvaged. I actually think Dracula is a really interesting example of this in that by the end of the novel, again, sorry, spoiler, Dracula is killed. But you have this idea that maybe, maybe there's something not so monstrous about him. Mina suggests to Jonathan, and this is after she's been kind of half turned, you should feel sorry for him because he could be me. And that also could be me in a few days or a few months. And I'm not a terrible person. And also you have that complex idea at the end of the novel where he is killed and he has that moment of peace on his face and maybe he wasn't maybe he wasn't such a bad guy after all even in narratives that try and present oh there's this monster and we have to kill the monster there's still something there where we can look at these characters and think about the concept of monstrosity as it kind of interacts with everyday norms and just question those I feel like Guillermo del Toro is probably the artist living right now that is most invested or at least most consistently invested in exploring the idea of what's monstrous and what isn't. And I would definitely recommend for viewers interested in that intersection with the Gothic to check out everything Guillermo del Toro has ever worked on because dude's a legend. His entire back catalogue is great. I love The Shape of Water because it introduces that idea of it's a gothic romance, essentially, where the, the romantic figure is a kind of fish monster. But Pan's Labyrinth, The Devil's Backbone, even I watched his recent Pinocchio animation. And it's it's really amazing what he can do with the idea of difference and monsters. Absolutely. Well, we could talk about this all day. I'm going to, uh, just as a parting note for our audience on this this somewhat heady conversation, just point out that this has been a cameras on kind of interview. And for the totality of the time that you've been listening, there's been a cardboard cutout of Dean Winchester from (laughs) Supernatural staring me down at a distance. Uh, so go ahead and insert that energy into the, the rest of this conversation for a fuller picture of how this went. Dr. Going, thank you so much for joining us. Please hype up everything you're doing right now. I want to hear about podcasts, lecture series, anything. Tell me where you're at. Thank you so much. Also, I don't know if you can see it, but there's also a cardboard cutout of Castiel and Sam next to Dean. They're just out of frame for me. Okay, let me just slightly, um, I don't know if you can see them now. That is, (laughs) that is an office. I like to work with an angel over my shoulder. I'm a massive fan of Supernatural. (laughs) I, I will happily rant to anyone that asks me about why Supernatural is Jewish and not a Christian show. And yeah, just shout out to the best Supernatural episode, um, Everybody Hates Hitler. Just because then it lets me emphasize that Nazis are bad. And I think that we just can't say that enough. If there's Um, one thing to take away. Yeah, please take that away. Nazis are bad. But thank you so much for inviting me on. This has been really fabulous. I am currently working on the podcast that I do with Dr. Lauren Nixon. So we are the Ghoul Guides. We have a podcast that comes out, I think, every two weeks or twice a month. I don't know. But we talk about all things spooky and gothic. I recently talk about golems. Um, in our last episode 
So if that's something that you're interested in, check us out. You can find us on most platforms at The Ghoul Guides. I have my Romance in the Gothic talk that's on YouTube, which is about anti-Semitism and the Gothic and Jewish horror. Currently doing a online virtual course with the Rosenbach on Monsters and Mad Science, which is looking at the Gothic in the 19th century. I don't know if you can still come along to that. I assume you can. So if you do want to join us, you can find all the information on our website. Yeah. Uh, what else am I doing? I can't remember. Other stuff. Lots of spooky stuff. You're writing a book, if I'm remembering correctly. <laughs> yes, I am. Thank you for reminding me. Book on the Wandering Jew. That is currently in its final stages. Hopefully should be out soon. <laughs> well, thank you again so much for joining us. This was a delightful conversation. And I hope that everyone can bring this with them for the remainder of, of the run of the show and on your next read of your favorite gothic novel. Keep an eye out for these things because they echo in interesting ways. Thank you so much for joining me, and I hope everyone has a wonderful day. Thank you all for joining us on this special bonus episode. This has been an interview with the one and only Dr. Mary Going of the Ghoul Guides podcast. That show can be found in our show notes, as well as other links to Dr. Going's work. This bonus episode was made possible by our crowdfund supporters. It featured editing by Tao Manir and was produced by Ella Watts and Pacific S. Obadiah, with executive producers Stephen Andrasano, Tao Manir, and Hannah Wright. It has been, as always, <clears throat> a bloody FM production.